If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Mark 9, we'll, um, we'll start in verse 30, and we'll go down to verse 41. Verse 30 through 41, uh, I'll read, and then I'll pray. Verse 30. And, they, and when they went on from there, this is, again, after the transfiguration, we talked about this right before Christmas, after the transfiguration, when the disciples uh, and Jesus came down with, um, uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration, they met this boy who had this demon, and the other disciples who were left behind could not cast out this demon from this boy, and so Jesus had to cast it out, and the disciples asked, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And then from that, verse 30, and they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee, And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Notice that wordplay there. Son of Man, hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And and they did not understand the saying, and they were even afraid to ask him about it. And they went to Capernaum. And, he, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys discussing when we were walking over here on the way? What were you discussing on the way here? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would want to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. He took Then he took a child and put him in in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he hugged him and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word this morning, and we approach it with humility. We approach it with, um, I approach it with um, an open heart, God, and I ask God that we would together collectively as a, as a church this morning approach your word with an open heart. I pray for those that, um, that are in the midst of uh, relational chaos in their lives, relational strife or hurt, brokenness, pain. And I pray, God, that you would, you would heal today, that you would show us how to relate to one another, how to relate to people at work, how to relate to our roommates, and how to relate to the city, God. And we need your help. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And we collectively together as a group say that we need you. Lord, I desperately need you. I, I pray, God, that you would, you would bring through my, my, my mouth this morning um, your truth and your word. And I pray for an anointing. I, I just, uh, I can't get across the things that are um, in your heart without your spirit. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. Pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, since we started uh, the church a year ago now, we celebrated our one-year anniversary last week, if you were a part, and it was really, really fun. Uh, We've been studying the book of Mark, 
And what we've been encountering week after week, chapter after chapter in our study of Mark, we've been saying this every single week, we've encountered the real Jesus. And that's what Mark kind of presents to us. That, what, that's what Mark tries to, to show us. And we, we get to see and we capture the real, raw, unadulterated, unmessed with Jesus every single week. The way that people react to him, what, how he reacts to people, how he reacts to brokenness, how he reacts to sin, how he reacts to violence, how he reacts to oppression and injustice. We see all who Jesus is. In the first part of the book of Mark, it's been all about who he is. Jesus' miracles are recorded in the first half of Mark. His compassion is recorded. His compassion and his deliverance over things like the religious elite and corrupt rulers and physical sickness and sin and death and even nature. He calms storms and he walks on water in the first part of the book of Mark. In the first part of the book of Mark, he's the rescuer and the deliverer, and that's the first part. But in the second part, in the second half of the book of Mark, there's this, there, a new pattern emerges. There's a turning point, a tipping point in the second half. In chapter 8, there's this dramatic flip. And it's not just dramatic and important in the story of Jesus, but it's dramatic and important in our stories as well. And the reason why is because Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, it turns from Jesus' character and his nature and his work to what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. What does it look like to follow him? I mean, here's who he is, and that's what we've been talking about for the last um, year now. Here's who he is, his miracles, his power over every single thing that would oppress and suppress humanity. He's the liberator. He's the deliverer. He's the one who was promised that would come. But the second half of the book, Mark, it changes. Now, what does it look like for you and me to actually follow him? Not just to be wowed by the fact that he walked on water or that he multiplied the fish and the loaves, or he raised a little girl from the dead. But what does it look like to actually follow him? And that's what this, the second half of the book of Mark is about. Because in chapters 9 and 10 especially, we have recorded the teachings of Jesus. See, before this, Mark has said things like, and Jesus taught them, but he never really said what he taught them. He just said that he taught them, but here in chapters, especially chapters 9 and 10, Mark stops like he seldom does, and records what Jesus actually teaches. And Mark records Jesus' teaching on power and success, on temptation, on hell, on marriage, on divorce, and on money. And so what we're going to do in the next couple weeks is stop and look at all those. And because I thought it would be fun, we're going to talk about singleness as well. Now, it's not brought up in the book of Mark, but I want to stop after we talk about marriage and divorce to talk about what does it mean to be, what does the New Testament, what does Jesus and the New Testament teach about singleness? And we'll do it on February 13th because I thought that would be fun too. <laughs> you probably are hoping by February 13th, I hope not to have that apply to my life. So I thought we'd look at, and I think that's important for people who are married and people who are single. If we're going to be this community, that really embodies Christ. We have to be good singles and good marrieds together. And so we'll look at that together. Now today, of course, the topic that comes up as we read in our text is about power and success and ultimately greatness. Something that I think San Francisco embodies and tries to embody very well. Power, success, and greatness. And so I wanna look at and consider three things from the text. The struggle for power, the sacrifice of service, and the source of change. 
the struggle for, pa- for power, the sacrifice of service, and the source of change. First, the, the struggle for power. Um, as Jesus led his guys through Galilee and Capernaum, as we read at the very beginning of, of this section, he's leading them along the way, okay? And this is, uh, I've said this before, this is very important because um, from, the, from chapter 8 on, there's this phrase that comes up again and again. He's on the way. They're on the way. And it's actually brought up twice in our text. What were you talking about when you were on the way? And they're like, okay, everyone, no, nobody tell what we were talking about. And then it, Mark says, actually, on the way, they were discussing who was the greatest. This on the way means they were on the way to Jerusalem. They were on the way to the Via De La Rosa. They were on the way to the place of suffering where Jesus would be crucified for our sins. They were on the way on that path of self-denial. And as they were on the way to self-denial, they were talking about who was the greatest. That's the irony. We've said before that Mark loves to use irony. And that's the irony here. That's why Mark keeps bringing it up on the way, on the way, on the way. And what were they talking about on the way? Well, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who would be the most successful disciple? That was their little debate. Their debate was about who would be the most successful disciple, who was headed for true spiritual greatness, who would be the most valuable disciple, the MVD. Like, who would get that award? Now, I'm going to get that award. No, 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 I'm going to get that award. Now, you have to understand the context of this argument for it to really make sense. Jesus had just come off the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was up there with three guys, three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he transfigured before them. His, the glory that was inside came outside. He was shining in all of his glory, and then Moses and Elijah appeared. It was one of the most amazing sights anyone could ever behold. And then when they were going down the mountain, Jesus said, okay, guys, don't tell anybody what you just saw, which kind of adds a little bit of drama to it as well. Like, I can't tell anybody, nobody. So they're walking down. The other disciples that were left behind couldn't cast out a demon from a little boy. And then Jesus had to address that situation. So as they're walking with Jesus here, this probably, probably came up. Something like, so guys, what happened on the mountain? Right? Wouldn't you ask that if you were up with Jesus and he's come down and you guys are like all smiling? You're like, oh, you know, you're like doing this. Like, it was amazing. Like, what happened on the mountain? We can't tell you but it was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, well, what do you mean you can't tell us? Well, Jesus said that we can't tell you. Well, why, why can't you tell us? Why do you guys only get to know? Because we're the greatest. <laughs> and you can imagine other, like, you're not the great Peter. Jesus just called you Satan like two chapters ago, okay? <laughs> you're not the greatest. No, we're, you guys couldn't even cast a demon out of a boy, a little boy. If I was there, you know, I'm the, that's my thing. I do the, I'm the demon guy, okay? I would have had that, boom, done. And they were just arguing back and forth about, oh, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the best um, teacher, I'm, I'm the best follower, I, Jesus loves me more. John's like, I, I lay on Jesus' chest, it's awesome, me and him have a thing. And everyone else, they're just fighting back and forth, and Jesus is the rabbi, so he's walking ahead of them, and they're following him. And Jesus just turns around and goes, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, shut up, everybody shut up. And of course Jesus knows because he's God, okay? So he's walking and he knows. And so when they get into the house, he's like, what were you guys discussing on the way? And they didn't want to say a thing about it. Like everybody just was quiet. But he knew. And it says this in Mark 9.34. But they kept silent. They were like, okay, everybody be quiet. For on the way they had argued, okay? They argued, they fought, 
with one another about who was the greatest. I mean, this, act, this was an actual conversation. They actually had this conversation. I mean, how awkward would it be if you walked up to an argument between Tark and I about who was the greatest pastor? I mean, can you imagine that? Like, you're walking up, and we're just talking back and forth. No, I did, no, I did, I did this. Well, I talked, I, no, I prayed, and I mean, all these things. And you would walk in, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is so awkward. This is so, I mean, we do this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, we don't argue about that all the time. But we do this kind of stuff all the time. We are always, always fighting internally, externally for position, all of us. We do this in the church, especially at work at home with our roommates, when you guys get married, there is this tension even there in marriage. There's always this fighting that happens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed that humanity is in, is in a constant struggle for dominance from which we cannot ourselves escape. We're in this constant struggle for dominance. We want to be the best. Even if we'll never, never say it with our mouths, we want to be the best. And this struggle for dominance in every relationship keeps on going until we settle into acknowledged patterns of control and submission. Until in every relationship we kind of acknowledge, okay, I control, you submit. Everybody cool with that? Until we establish that, we keep fighting. We fight internally with ourselves and externally with others about who's the most powerful at work or who's the most influential among friends or who's the most successful in our families, who's better dresser or the better looking who's smarter or stronger, who's the alpha male or the alpha female, if that's even a thing. I mean, who's the greatest? Basically, this is what we fight about. Who is going to control and who is going to submit in this relationship? Who's going to control and who's going to submit? We do this with our roommates. We do this at work. We do this everywhere. And we usually fight to acknowledge this in almost every relationship that we have. And this is often the source of tension in your relationships. And this is what brings up the tension here with the disciples. They are fighting until, until someone acknowledges that, okay, who's the leader here? Who's going to be the one who, who controls this group when Jesus is gone? I mean, because if he's going to die, who's going to control this group? Who's the greatest in this circle? Who's going to control and who's going to submit? One commentator writes, the need to assert our, or protect ourselves Each time we meet someone new says something very important about us. It reveals a fundamental insecurity at the very core of our being. Don't we do this every single time we meet somebody? We either assert ourselves or protect ourselves every single time we meet somebody new. In every new relationship, we have have this inward need to either assert ourselves as soon as we meet somebody, we're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to show them how fun I am, how charismatic I am, that I should be loved by them. And when we meet them, we're like, okay, when they, when they find out about my awesome album collection, and that I play bass guitar, and that I have this amazing refined palate for locally roast coffee, they're going to they're gonna flip out, and they're going to love me, wait until they get to know me. They're going to think I'm amazing. And we think this, subconsciously, we're like, we meet somebody, we're like, wait, wait till you get to know me. You're going to love me. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a good friendship. Or if we don't do that, if you're like, I never think that way. A lot of people in this room do. But if you don't, what happens is we want to protect ourselves. When we meet somebody new, we want to protect ourselves from the fear of them rejecting us. We want to protect ourselves from the fear of them abandoning us or betraying us. And so we withdraw. 
And there are many people that when they first meet, they, they don't want to engage at all in new relationships because of the hurt that might be down the road. If I get to know this person, they will betray me. If I get to know this person, they will hurt me. And we keep people at arm's length emotionally, and you never let them in. All of this goes back to our insecurities. And what the disciples' collective insecurity does is it poisons their band of brothers. There's poison that's injected here. They were literally arguing and fighting about who was the greatest. And the irony here is that this episode opens with Jesus teaching his disciples that he was going to die. That's the irony. He was teaching his disciples, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. Look at verse 31 and 32. He was teaching his disciples, teaching, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Look at what it says about them, though. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Most commentators think what that means is that they got a glimpse of, they didn't understand it because it wasn't, they wasn't even in their worldview, but they didn't even want to ask about it because they were afraid of the implications. Like, what do you mean you're going to die? And what do you mean that we're following you to your death? And what do you mean that we have to take up our cross and follow you as well? I don't really want to talk about it. Can we just talk about how great we are? Let's talk about that. That's way more fun. They didn't want to go there. See, while Jesus speaks of surrendering his life, the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. Jesus is saying, I'm going to surrender my life, I'm going to give it up to serve you, and they're thinking about, well, how am I going to fulfill my life? Let's talk about my career path. Let's talk about how, how I have to position myself to make this much money or be this great at what I do. Let's talk about that. And Jesus is talking about serving, and it says that he's teaching them this. He's not informing them that he's going to die. He wasn't like, hey guys, I'm let, heads up, I'm going to die. He wasn't informing them. He was actually teaching them. He was preparing them for his death, not simply in funeral arrangements, but like, I want, I want this to be ingrained in your collective consciousness that the reason I'm dying is to serve, and you must die as well. You must serve as well. You must humble yourself as well. Do you see the implications of this? He's trying to shape and mold this idea of what power and service truly is, what it means to follow Jesus. And not only does their insecurity lead to fighting and arguing within their little group, it also led to this elitist attitude towards everyone else outside their group. This is fairly funny if you know the context. Look at verse 38. And then John said to him, teacher, <laughs> we saw someone trying to cast out demons in your name, and we stopped them, or we tried to stop them, because he was not following us. Now, apparently, there was a group of rogue disciples outside of the 12 disciples that were doing successful ministry in Jesus' name by casting out demons. They were doing ministry outside of the 12, and then John heard about it, the 12 heard about it, and they went over to him and said, listen, you guys got to stop. Do you even know who Jesus is? Do you even know his last name? No, I don't think so. We do. And we know him, and we know everything about him, and you weren't even commissioned. We were commissioned. You weren't. You're not a part of the 12, so please, just stop, okay? Stop your helpful ministry, whatever you want to call it, your ministries of mercy, whatever. Just stop it and let, leave it to us, the pros. And that's what they were doing. Anyone outside of their group, they had this, uh, and, and you can imagine how this could possibly damage Jesus' ministry. They, the, these people, these guys who are outside could be fronting as followers of Jesus, 
but would ultimately lead people astray. They could be using the name of Jesus for personal gain. They could be making money off Jesus' ministry. They could be turning Jesus into a marketable product. They could have been undermining the reputation and the integrity of Jesus' true and real cause. Or they could have just been cheesy. They could have just been horrible. They could have put out a really bad album of songs about Jesus. Or they could have screen printed really tacky Jesus t-shirts. They could have represented Jesus in a way that, that's not cool. Like, why did you do that? You're obviously not of us, so please stop doing that. I mean, think of the endless implications of these rogue disciples. And John was like, listen, Jesus, okay, I did some damage control. I told them to stop, or I would call down fire from heaven. Like, I got, I got your back. John said, literally, I told them to stop because he was not following us. Notice that? John didn't say, hey, I told him to stop because he wasn't following you, Jesus. But he wasn't in our group. He wasn't in our clique. He wasn't in our little gang. He was not disciple approved. And our struggle for power and place in this world poisons relationships inside our respective circles and even outside. We fear people from the outside getting in. We don't want, we don't want new people into our group. And the people that are in our group, we keep fighting for position and place in our group. We're just these little insecure humans. This is exactly the, the, what I love about reading the book of Mark is that Mark is very, very raw in the way he portrays the disciples. He doesn't hold anything back. He's like they were fighting for position and they were elitist and they didn't want anyone else in their little clique. And Jesus turns all of this upside down. Jesus teaches a better way. Second point is the sacrifice of service. When they get into the house, Jesus sits down. Now, sitting down is a posture, an ancient posture of teaching. So he teaches that he's going to die, and then when he gets into the house, he sits down again to teach them. This whole section is about teaching. Jesus is teaching. He knew what they were arguing about. In verse 35, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. See, Jesus does not condemn the disciples for their desire to be great. He doesn't sit down and go, you guys want to be great? Shame on you. You should never want to be great. You guys are nothing, small. Remember that. You'll never be great. You'll never amount to anything. Stop trying to be great. He doesn't say that. He says, you really want to be great? Do you want to be, you want to know what it takes to be really, really, really great? Do you want to be great and have peace at the same time? Do you want to be great and have security at the same time? I mean, do you want a greatness that isn't like when you, when you feel great for fighting to the top of a ladder, only to defend yourself once you get there? And this is what it feels like sometimes in our pursuit of greatness. We will fight for greatness. We will fight to have the best portfolios and jobs and fashion. We'll, we'll fight to have the best relationships, the best life, only to not be able to sleep at night because we're trying to keep it there. We're trying to keep control of everything trying to keep control of our jobs and our careers and our lives, all of it, holding it all together because we fought to get there. And Jesus says, do you want a different kind of greatness? A kind of greatness to where once you arrive at that greatness, there's perfect poise and peace once you get there. You want to have real, spiritual, godly greatness in the eyes of God for the kingdom of God. So he teaches true greatness is achieved in an upside-down logic of the dominion of God. 
The person who wants to become first must make him or herself last and a servant of all. Basically, Jesus doesn't reject prominence and greatness. He redefines it. He says, you really want to be great? Because this is so hard to grasp. Now, I say that, and you're like, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Serve. This is the serve, serving message. I get it. I'll serve like for about eight hours after service, and then I'll get right back to my selfish ways again. So we can do this for like eight hours, but that's about it. We can't, how do we really, really serve? Well, Jesus gives an illustration. Because he knows this is hard to grasp, because if he just said something like, hey, guys, everybody serve. Everybody in this, in this room, all the 12 disciples, whatever, everybody just serve. They would go, okay, fine, I'll serve me. And I'll serve where I could, where, I'll serve people that can serve me back. I'll serve people that I like. I'll serve people that are good looking. I'll serve people that are powerful. I'll serve people that can advance my career. I'll serve them. And Jesus now gives a living parable. He illustrates it. He grabs a kid. He's in a house. Now, again, they sat down. There's a, probably a kid running around. And everyone, probably the disciples, they've done this before. They ignore the kids or they get the kids out of the room. A little later on, a kid comes to Jesus. And disciples stop the kid like, hey, kid, seriously? Son of God, you? No, get away, get away. And Jesus is like, don't, don't, don't do that. Let, let them come. I, I want to hold. So one of these kids is running around in the house, and Jesus grabs them and holds them and hugs them, puts them on his lap, and he sits them there, and he says this. Whoever receives one such child, and he's holding a kid in his hands. He's literally hugging this kid. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What's going on here? In this society, especially in an agrarian society like they lived in, children were normally regarded as an inconvenience. Children were not contributing members of society. They actually consumed the same, if not more, resources and attention than anyone else in society. They didn't pull their weight. Children had no power. They had no status. They had few rights. They were essentially seen as a drain on resources until they can grow up and contribute themselves. They cry, they whine, they're not good communicators, they had to be changed and fed, and after all that was done, they couldn't give anything back. Now, why would Jesus grab a kid and say, you want to be great? Receive a child. This is the time in the text that every pastor says, if you want to be great, volunteer for kids' ministry. <laughs> and I think that's very true. So, please volunteer for kids' ministry. But Jesus was not saying, hey, receive this kid because the kids are cute. Kids are cute. We have, you'll see them running around between services. Kids are super cute. And they're soft and cuddly. And if they're little babies, their little baby head smells so good. <laughs> this is not, Jesus is like, hey, grab them, hold them because they're so cute and cuddly. And then they'll let you, sometimes they'll let you love them. And it's a good way to serve your church. He wasn't saying that. He was saying receive a child because doing so is all sacrifice and service. Receiving a child is complete sacrifice and service. The young parents that we have here, my wife and I, want to have kids very soon. Every single young parent that we have, parents that we have in, in our church, they all say the same thing. Once you have kids, your life changes. By change, I mean stops. By change, I mean just completely changes. Your whole life is now poured out in complete sacrifice for this child, and this child can give you nothing back except 
an occasional smile, maybe a mama, a dada, or something, emotional, like, response, but they don't make money. They don't, like, build us up. They don't, like, encourage us. They don't, like, keep going, mom. You're doing a great job. They don't do that at all. And we kind of know, even in San Francisco, it's a very child-unfriendly, Lord willing, that's Hopefully we be a, we're a part of changing that. Very child-unfriendly city. You bring a child into a, a certain place and he's crying, everybody kind of looks and like, really, kid in here? It's, this is a public restaurant. You can't bring kids in here. <laughs> we, we think that. Even a couple weeks ago when we were um, uh, dedicating um, William, he was crying during worship in the back. And his mom was just so apologetic. I'm so sorry he was crying. And we're like, kids cry. That's okay. And they, they feel so like everyone's judging them. Like everyone, like, why'd you bring your kid here? I can't believe you. Kids are complete sacrifice and service, and you pour out for them. And you expect nothing in return. Nothing. You just pour out for them. You feed them and birth them and change them and hold them and protect them and train them and pray for them. And you don't expect that kid to look up and say, Mom and Dad, you're, you know what? This is totally going to help your career one day. This is going to be awesome for you. Or this is, mom, dad, this is really going to advance your social life. Or because you had me, your finances are going to be way better. You're going to save so much money by having me. That's not what a child is at all. Children are complete sacrifice and service. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. Complete sacrifice and service as a parent, if you're a parent, or as a friend if you're a friend. He's not saying, hey, see all of your friends as little kids that are just they need changing and burping. He's saying, now he, he defines true relationships are a matter of service. A true relationship, a true friendship, a working relationship, a marriage, having children is complete a, matter, a complete matter of sacrifice and service. That's what relationships are. Jesus is saying that the sacrificial service is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Sacrificial service. That's how you and I will be defined. If you follow Jesus, we are defined by sacrificial service. And so let me just make this real personal. Are you serving at work? When you go to work, are you, not just are you making a paycheck, are you getting a paycheck, but are you serving people? And not people that can serve you back. But are you serving people? Are you serving in your circle of friends? Or maybe this is a really good time to evaluate. Maybe you're that one difficult friend in your circle of friends. Maybe you're the one that's really, really hard to love. Maybe you're the one that's a drain on resources. If so, your friends should still love you sacrificially. But maybe you should start serving sacrificially as well. The implications go a little further because the disciples are not being told to be like children here. They are told, they're being told to be like Jesus who embraces those who are insignificant. Jesus is saying, do you want to be great? Then he correlates our response to the hungry, thirsty, lonely, naked, sick, imprisoned to our response to God. He says, if you receive a child and somehow mysteriously God the Father and the Son are hidden in this, in this child. He's like, if you receive this child, you receive me and him who sent me. 
somehow miraculously when we, and mysteriously, when we embrace those who can never give us anything in return and we sacrificially serve the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the naked, the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned, we're serving God. So basically, if what Jesus said is true, and it's still true today, then your attitude toward those who have no standing in society reflects your attitude to Jesus. It can't be, hey, I love the pastor, therefore I love Jesus. I love my friend, therefore I love Jesus. It should be, I love the people who can't love me back. And that shows and proves and like adds weight to my love for God. In Luke 6, Jesus says that if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? That's what everybody does. And then he goes on, he says, if you, love, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? That's what everybody does as, as well. And if you give to those who can give back to you, that's what everybody does. The kingdom of God is different. Give to those who cannot give back to you. Sacrificially serve. Now, how do we do this? Last point. The source of change. Now, we all know this is the way that we should live. I mean, we all agree, yes, I agree, the world would be such a better place if everybody in this city and in this nation and in this world understood that we sacrificially serve. But let's be realists here. You're, you're not saying that there shouldn't be a chain of command or there shouldn't be a boss or a CEO, right? I mean, you're not saying that the CEO should be a janitor. Well, that would make a good reality television show. But what Jesus is saying is that if you, what if you did have whatever power you have, maybe you are a boss, maybe you are a CEO, maybe you do have people that you're responsible for, maybe you are that, what if you leveraged your power and your influence to serve other people? What if you saw whatever you do, the money that you make, the position of power that you have, whatever you, your influence and in, in creativity or the art world or the finance world or whatever you do in between, what if you started to leverage your power to serve other people? Isn't this exactly what Jesus did? See, in the beginning of this section, it says Jesus calls himself, and Mark calls himself over and over again, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man has come to die. Now, the Son of Man is actually borrowed from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 7, it's this beautiful picture of the coming Son of Man. And when the Messiah comes, he will come as a son of man in all of his splendor, dominion, glory, and power. And he will come to establish a kingdom. And it says that all peoples of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will serve the son of man. But what did Jesus come to do? In all of his power to come in and be served, he came in and served. He leveraged his power to redeem us, to redeem, to save our little insecure lives that are so wrapped up in power, so wrapped up in what people think, so wrapped up in just pleasing ourselves. He came and he poured out his life. He leveraged his power to serve us. Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is broken relationship between us and God. And what Christ has come in to do is to die for us, 
to serve, to pour out his life. His whole life in the book of Mark has been about showing his character and his love and his compassion and his power and then taking all of that and leveraging it by saying, I'm pouring out my life that you can have life. I'm breaking my relationship to the Father that you can have a relationship with the Father. My life for yours. The only way that we can begin to pour in our circle of friends, in our relationships, in our marriages, in raising our kids, the only way that we can do it sacrificially and to serve is by knowing that Christ has done it for us. When that explodes in our heart, we don't need to go, you know, I need to be the best at this or the best at that. If some of you guys are really great at what you do, and I'm so thankful, I'm not saying quit. I'm saying whatever power, influence that you have, Use it to serve people. Use it to serve people that can never serve you back. See, there's a great, there is a bit of a, of a danger when, we, when you guys come in and again sit and then face this way and I teach from the Bible every week. If you're a visitor that comes in here, I might be able to say a certain thing in a certain way, but unless it's lived out in those chairs and amongst this community, it's false. We have to be embodying this. We have to be embodying this in our community, in our community groups, in our neighborhoods, and in the city. And the only way that we can do that is by understanding what lengths and depths Christ has done and gone to save us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your grace and your love that you have showered and you have poured out upon us. And Lord, we confess to you that we fall short. I confess that I fall very, very short in this. It was one of uh, the ways, Lord, that um, it was really hard to study for this because I know I fall short in so many ways. I thank you, God, that you have the power to transform my heart and our hearts to really change us, to want to serve and to pour out our lives, God. Where we've made it about us, we repent where we've tried to strive endlessly for power and position, and it could be in the weirdest ways, in the smallest of circles, we, we repent and help us, Lord, to serve. Help us to serve the people that are around us right now, that live around us. We need your strength and your power. Thank you that you have served us the God of the universe served us. We're so humbled by that. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.